North Carolina inches closer to pistol purchase permit repeal. Plus, the Heritage Foundation's Amy Swearer discusses President Biden's new executive order on guns. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want to support our reporting and get insight into all of what's going on with guns in America. You can also sign up for our free newsletter if you want to check out what we're about before you make the commitment to becoming a member. But uh if you become a member, you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you won't get anywhere else on this planet. And this week on the show, we are discussing President Biden's new executive order on guns, what the details are, what it means, where everything's going. And we've got a special guest with us today, the Heritage Foundation's Amy Swearer. Welcome to the show, Amy. Welcome back. You've been on once before. We're happy to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Can you tell people a little bit more about yourself? Uh, I think you just got done uh, this week doing some congressional testimony. I think you have another one scheduled, so you're pretty busy lately. We appreciate you making some time, but uh, give people a little bit more background about yourself. Sure. So I am a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation in our EDME Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, Most of my scholarship focuses on the Second Amendment, on gun policy issues, mental health, the intersection of mental health and and gun violence, um, and and a lot of school safety and and related things. Um, I just recently uh, was one of the, the primary authors behind our heritage ebook, The Essential Second Amendment. It's available for download online. I, I highly recommend you go check it out. Um, we're really proud of it. We think it's a great product. And the best part is it is free. Um, so go check it out. Um, and I also run the Heritage Foundation's Defensive Gun Use Tracker, um, which is an interactive database where we track media verified defensive gun uses. Um, and we tweet about them on the regular. So uh, check us out on Twitter as well. Absolutely. Well, so President Biden has now issued a new executive order on dealing with firearms. Uh, this is would be his third, I believe, since he took office. The first two were pretty wide ranging and significant. Um, the ghost gun ban and the pistol brace ban, which will affect really millions of people. This one is interesting. It deals uh, primarily with federal licensing for firearms dealers, and who will have to obtain that license if they want to sell guns at all. And it also deals with a number of other things, FTC report on gun marketing. There's uh, an initiative about the DOD trying to implement policies to affect how guns are sold in the United States, potentially. There's uh, a, a number of other smaller initiatives in there as well, uh, ATF records on federal licensees who had some sort of violations. They're going to try to release some of those records. Um, There's kind of a wish list in here of uh, what gun control advocates have wanted for a while in different areas. But I'm interested in your overall take first on what you think this means. Is this as significant, as uh, aggressive as the previous two executive orders that the president put out? 
Well, I, I think it's trying to be as aggressive as the president can be at this point. Mm. Um, you know, he, he sort of used up a lot of uh, his available tools with the last two recent rule changes with the ATF. Um, and so there's there's not a whole lot more that realistically he can reach for, um, though I, I think the extent to which this can be viewed as a aggressive, if you will, is really going to depend on what these actual rules look mm. like. Um, so yeah. the, the way that these executive orders work is that the president just sort of says, hi, agency X, Y, and Z, I want you to promulgate a rule doing this or to issue a report doing that or you know, to, to take strides to, to do this general idea. Uh, but then the agency itself has to go and promulgate that rule, which we don't know what that means or what that looks like until we actually get it. Um, now, with some of these, I think there is a certainly a potential uh, that the agency ultimately could come out with a rule that uh, is quite problematic. Um, but there's also potential that you know it, it turns out to be a big nothing burger, if you will. Mm. Um, and, and it really just depends. But that's, I, I think, what's interesting is is how far it could potentially go once we get those those agency rules out. Yeah, I think that's a good summation of what we're seeing here, right? It's not like the previous two where he was, uh, I mean, of course, those the, the details of the rulemaking process and those mattered quite a lot as well, but it was fairly clear straight from the go that he was going to push this these policies as aggressively as possible with trying to redefine what a firearm is to eliminate, uh, you know, basically homemade, firearm making uh, tools and and parts, and then that he was basically going to try and reclassify pistol-braced guns as subject to the National Firearms Act and all the, the complications that come along with that for people who already own them, uh, including potential federal felony charges. But this, this time around, it does seem like we're, it's less clear exactly what we're going to get out of this executive order uh, and exactly what these directives from the president are going to result in as far as the rules that these agencies come up with. But let's talk, let's start with what the president focused on, which is this, this idea of trying to get closer to universal background checks. That's what, how he put it. He, he was saying that, you know, within the bounds of current law, we're going to try to get as close to requiring background checks on all sales as we possibly can. And it seems the tactic he's going to use for that is, changing what qualifies somebody as a, in the business of doing uh of selling guns and therefore needing a federal license a federal firearms license an ffl uh where what what's your view on that rule how clo you know how close can he actually push to universal background checks through requiring people to get ffls yeah, so let's take a step back and talk about just very briefly what federal law currently is, uh, because mm -hmm. to to a large extent, you know, the, the president can't just override federal law and unilaterally mandate. Well, look, if you transfer a gun, you need to have a background check. Uh, if, so Congress has, for uh, several decades now, already had in place a series of statutes. That essentially says if you are engaged in the business of, of dealing in firearms, you have to get a federal firearms license 
Uh, and then it tells these FFL holders, anytime you transfer a gun to a prospective buyer, um, before you do that, you have to conduct a background check, period. And so the question becomes, okay, well, who is or is not engaged in the business of dealing in firearms? Right. Um, there is a, a pretty lengthy definition uh, of what that means, um, but it's still not very clear. You know, it, it, it's not really an objective test, right? Where it, it's like, if you sell 10 firearms this year, you are engaged in the business, um, right. you know, or if, if you made $1,000 last month, you're engaged in the business. It's it's quite subjective. Um, and so I, I think the goal here from the Biden administration is to promulgate rules that that to the, the greatest extent possible include the most amount of people as possible under this definition of what it means to be engaged in the business of, of dealing in firearms so that if they want to engage in sales or, or transactions or transfers of firearms, um, they can't do so as a private seller because if you are a private unlicensed seller, you can sell uh, or transfer guns to a resident of your same state without a background check and without all of the other record keeping requirements. And I think the issue here is not necessarily that the president wants uh, you know, thousands more people to, to go and get their, their federal firearms license. I, I think it's really that he, he wants to um, sort, sort of put the kibosh on people feeling like they can engage in what would be otherwise lawful sales without going through an FFL because they, they just don't know. Um, you know, so I, I think that's really where you, you, you get this sort of chilling effect. Um, you you know, again, it it will be interesting to see what this rule looks like when it comes out, whether it will try to, um, put in some objective factors, um, something to the extent of, you know, if you sold more than five guns, right, if you made more than $500, um, and I think he has a little bit more room to do that than previous administrations, because if you recall, uh, last year, Congress passed the, the bipartisan gun safety bill. And yeah. as part of that, they, they just very, very... They changed that definition just ever so slightly. It wasn't mm. entirely clear what that definition change accomplished, but I think yeah. it gives the I Biden administration... Right. It, it gives them room to just sort of latch on to that to say, well, look, we, we need to def- we need to help define and clarify what Congress meant here. And so I think that's where we might run into to, to trouble with this chilling effect. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, right, because this reminds me a lot of a 2016 executive order from President Obama, where they basically did the same thing. They tried to s- tighten the uh, the interpretation of what a what it means to be in the business for uh, you know in regards to obtaining one of these licenses and even at that point they said you know even if you're just selling one gun you could be in the business um they didn't you know but it still fell back on this sort of it it really comes down to like what they can prove in court uh, whether a judge will buy that somebody was actually in the business when they sold a gun uh, that DOJ is prosecuting them over. Right. Uh, and I think that's still going to be largely the case, but the, that, I don't think that executive order really accomplished much in practice from during the Obama administration. I don't think there was a sea change in how that law was enforced. And I'm skeptical that there will be 
for this one too. But you're right that there there is this extra complication that the law, the definition in the law did change slightly. Basically, they removed the word livelihood. So used to talk about livelihood and profit being your main right. uh, goal with selling guns. That's when you're engaged in the business. And they really, you know, ATF has a whole list of factors they consider, you know, whether you have a storefront, right? That's a pretty straightforward one. If you have a storefront and you're selling guns out of it, you're probably engaged in the business of selling guns. If you have a business name, you make business cards right. that say Bob's guns, you're probably in the business, right? If you're selling, if you're going and constantly cycling through guns, just buying them to resell them, to flip them, you might be, you know, that's going to be a factor that they would consider as being engaged in the business, but it doesn't really come down to in practice. Oh, you sold X number of guns or you made this amount of money. Now this new standard removes livelihood from that definition. Right. And so maybe it's more forgiving to the government in this case. And maybe that will be able to implement a broader interpretation of what it means to be engaged. But I don't know. I, I read those two clauses. It's you still have to be predominantly seeking profit while right. selling guns. So I don't know how much it's really changed. And I guess that's what will be interesting to see how they approach this. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, from a, a practical standpoint, right, the, the the problem, regardless of what ATF does here, is that it, it needs to be promulgated in such a way that uh, it, it has this chilling effect, right? Be, mm. Because if I think most people who are looking at selling guns, either one, don't don't realize that background checks are a thing for private sales uh, already, or if they do, right, they they understand that okay, well, I'm not an FFL, but they're not necessarily looking at the technical definitions. And the reality is, already th these case th these are not cases that are are you know widely prosecuted um, be because they're widely disobeyed. Um, you know, so there's sort of a, a practical problem here of a lot of times you can only prosecute people after they've you know uh, unlawfully engaged in the business without a, a federal firearms license and mm -hmm. then someone went on and used that gun in a crime and then they tracked it back to this transfer and then they looked around and said oh and also this person you know is selling guns out of his garage without background checks all the time and, and then they go after that person um, you know, so again, I, I think from a practical perspective, the, the, the biggest issue could potentially be that chilling effect, but that's even at risk if this is not, you know, widely understood by the general population, um, that, that this has been changed in that way. And so I, I think if anything, that might, that might, uh, make, you know, again, we, we don't have the rules, but if that's the goal, I think that might push the DOJ into wanting the most restricted. They, they want this to make headlines. You know, they mm -hmm. they they want, uh, you know, your your average American to sit and go, oh shoot, I I can't, you know, sell guns unless I get a, uh, you know, I I can't transfer part of my collection to my grandkid unless I get a license. Um, I think they they want that headline news, and so I think that that probably pushes me toward assuming they will go as restrictive, or I guess in this case, as inclusive as they can with that definition. Uh, but again, we we will see. Yeah, and I do think that a lot of it does come down to just whatever they do, whatever they say the standard is going to be, 
a lot of it will come down to practical implications of actually enforcing something like that, because these aren't uh, sexy crimes for federal prosecutors, right? It's just like, it reminds me a lot of straw purchases, right? Everyone agrees. There's really no controversy over the idea of prosecuting straw purchases, which is when somebody buys a gun for someone else that they know can't legally own one, you know, a, you know, a criminal, their girlfriend or or brother or whoever goes out and buys the gun under their name because they've got a clean record, but it's really to give it to the criminal who then uses it for, you know, a nefarious purpose. And everywhere, there's really no controversy over prosecuting those sorts of cases, but it still doesn't really happen that often. It's not a top priority because these are not cases that you make a career on as a prosecutor in the federal government. You know, they, they want to go after big networks of, of criminals and drug cartels and, and, drug dealing networks and gangs and so forth. And these are low level crimes for a lot of these prosecutors. And so you, there's a constant issue with getting them to even take on these cases. And I think courts will be pretty skeptical of trying to drag in like Johnny from who flipped a gun and made it 500 bucks, uh, you know, because he didn't have an FFL when he did. Yeah. It. And he and he sold it to his his best friend with a concealed carry permit who he knows isn't a, a felon sort of thing. Right. right? So th there are even even if that language change from the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that changes the mind of DOJ and they're willing to try and push things further, I think courts will be pretty skeptical of these cases uh, as well, depending on who they choose to go after. There's probably some low hanging fruit out there that, oh, uh, like yeah. you described before, where it's going to be something that most people would agree should this person should be prosecuted. But, it, you know, there, there are very much practical limitations to how far they can push things on this front. They're not going to get, I wouldn't say, to universal background checks like the president is talking about. Right. I mean, am I off base there? No, no, no. I, I mean, because again, the, the the president cannot unilaterally just declare through, you know, the, the ATF or the Department of Justice that, you know, well, any transfer now, no matter what, that that requires a background check, which is normally what people mean with background checks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, theoretically, th this could be so broad that in their minds, they will consider any sale for even a dollar of profit to be, you know, a sale predominantly for profit. And so therefore you should have had right. uh, a license. And, um, but, but again, I, I think that probably there's sort of a balancing act for the department of justice, because the more outrageous, uh, they, they, they try to get with this. I think the easier it is to challenge that this is actually trying to override Congress's, you know, mm. clear yeah. definition. Um, so it's, it's a balancing act for them. Um, and it, again, I, I think we will, we will learn a lot more about how that, that comes out, uh, for the DOJ with that balancing act once we get the language. Yeah, for sure. So let's move on to some of the other aspects of this executive order, because it's kind of a hodgepodge of things mm -hmm. in there. Uh, what are, what's one of the other areas where you're concerned? I know that, uh, we were talking beforehand and the DOD contracts, Right. is an area that that you could see potentially having a, a wider effect? Yeah. So I, I think there are, are three other ones that stuck out. So one is um, he, President Biden directs the Department of Defense to uh, essentially come up with a, a set of principles 
um, and factors they want to use when uh, to, to implement sort of gun safety principles when the DOD acquires guns for the military. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a bit of a word salad, and it is. Um, on the other hand, I, I think it's pretty clear that the intent there is uh, to have the DOD essentially with these principles say, look, we are not going to buy guns for the military from companies or contractors that do not implement X, Y, and Z gun control policies you know, of their own accord, even though it's not mandated by law. For example, um, we, we will not acquire uh, small arms from a company that does not, on the civilian side of their sales, um, you know, uh, require someone to be 21 or, you know, wait 10 days, uh, you know, pose their own waiting periods right. um, or, or those sorts of things. Or, or who sells, or who sells quote, or... assault weapons to uh, right. in states where they're not prohibited, um, those sorts of things. Right. Um, or, or uh, you know, invest into smart gun technology or whatever. Right. This is that. And I think if people, if you're old enough, I guess might recall the Smith and Wesson deal with the Clinton administration, where in exchange for uh, backing off of the sort of frivolous lawsuit um, uh, endeavors that people had gone on, uh, they Smith and Wesson had agreed to invest into smart gun technology. And that, uh, I mean, that's actually, I think, leads into one of the major hurdles that any plan like that with the DOD is going to face, which is that gun co- that almost bankrupted Smith and Wesson. Smith and Wesson almost went out of business because of the backlash to that, uh, to agreeing to that deal, and that they their CEO had to resign. They yeah, it was a total mess, and I don't think any gun company today would actually go through with something like that unless their unless their plan was to never sell guns outside of the military ever again right which i I mean realistically there have been some companies in in recent years that have said we are uh we are going to move toward focusing more exclusively on on military and police and and government sales Mm -hmm. um you know whether or not that has worked out for them i will not be the the arbiter of of truth in that regard but i i I think it's very clear that for some of them that has not worked out yeah Um, but i i think you also have so you have you have that problem right of on the the civilian gun control side you have the government trying to in a roundabout way impose gun control that it can't get through the the democratic process right um but on the other hand this is this is actually an, a national security issue like if the if this rule turns out as a worst case scenario where it really is not just a word salad but the the government really saying the DOD will not acquire you know, small arms from any company that, that doesn't do this, you're now limiting national security choices based on companies' willingness to impose gun control instead of on which company has the best firearms for our military. Um, you know, and I think, I think realistically... Uh, th- this turns out not to be a, a, a nothing burger per se, but to to be less of an issue. I, I think it's easy for the DOD to to you know at least try to say that they're doing something here because they already just recently signed a deal with I, I think Sig Sauer yeah. for the you know that the next generation combat firearms. Um, so realistically, they they're they're not going to be making 
mass acquisitions of, of that nature for, for potentially decades, um, in, unless something goes horribly south. So it, it, it kind of like takes it off their shoulders. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, we don't have to acquire new, new weapons contracts for several decades. But if we did, you know, we, we, we wouldn't consider it in, unless the companies did X, Y, and Z. Um, so yeah. again, it's... Although, I mean, I think even that would be super problematic for DOT, right? Like, do you really want to alienate an entire political party and you know, hundreds of millions of Americans oh, yeah. uh, for this? Like, I understand that certainly that's, it, it does seem that that would be the goal of something like mm. this from the Biden administration is to get DOD to try and backhand, backdoor, you know, gun control through their acquisition process. Um, but, if, you know, it also reminds me a lot of these, these strict gun control laws in places like California or or Illinois or anywhere really that there are bans on magazines or certain kinds of guns. What you always see is the police being exempted from those bans because they don't want to have to use the guns that right. uh, that are still legal. Like California is the perfect example of this, right? The handgun roster, the unsafe <laughs> handgun roster they have in They're California. They're so unsafe that only cops can have them. <laughs> exactly. You, he's got this whole list of you can't have a, a handgun unless it's got a magazine safety or a loaded chamber indicator and, you know, whatever. People can debate whether they like those features or not or whether they uh, – but uh, – or uh, obviously the big one is microstamp because it's not a technology that actually exists in practice anywhere. No guns in the world have that technology incorporated into them and it's questionable as to whether it, they even could. But, you know, the police get exemptions from these things. They get exemptions because the police don't actually want to be forced to use those sort of guns. And so, uh, you know, that, that's what this reminds me of. Like the military um, isn't going to want to actually use smart guns in the vast majority of situations because of the shortcomings of that, uh, the inherent shortcomings of adding like biometrics into oh, a safety right. mechanism or what have you. There's, yeah. a lot, there's a lot of things in that realm or or try to, you know, limit the design. And I think they'll get in a lot of, uh, they'll create a lot of political problems for DOD if they start trying to uh, use acquisitions in this highly political way. Well, and I, I think you bring up a good point. Um, you know, it, I, I immediately went to, the, the assumption is that this is going to try to be backdoor gun control and, mm -hmm. and not that this is going to be trying to implement those principles on the military or police themselves. Like, like the, right. Because that would just be so absurd. It, it is intuitively absurd uh, that, that the government, whatever, that, that any soldier in combat would be like, yeah, you know what I really want is a gun that may or may not work with smart technology. You know, that if, if I need to pick up my buddy's gun right? Because I'm out of ammo or he's down. Well, now I can't use it because it doesn't have my fingerprint, right? right. Or, you know, that or has a magazine lock. Or the fingerprint reader is wet if you right. ever use the cell phone. Right. Or, or you know, it, it, it has a, a magazine lock, so I can't quickly change out my mag, right? right. No, no government agent, whether it's military or civilian side, it, it is going to want that. So it, it, I don't even think it crossed anybody's mind that, that that's what the word salad 
meant mm-hmm. because you're right, it is so absurd. Um, but then they they flip around and say, but these are the strategies we want to implement on the civilian side. Yeah, we want to force because this because on you guys, else. you guys, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know, if you're in a life or death situation. <laughs> And the government isn't there to protect you. Well, you know, that's fine if your gun doesn't work. But, you know, for us, we're really special. So but that's that's one potential uh, risk or like potentially aggressive angle they could go is this mm-hmm. DOD path, regardless of these shortcomings we're talking right. about. Uh, what what was you had two more? What were the other two? So I, I think the one of the other ones, it was a directive for the Department of Transportation to Um, I forget the exact wording, but essentially do something, uh, look at doing something about uh, uh, thefts and and losses of firearms uh, being transferred uh, between FFLs when in commerce, right? So when they're being shipped from manufacturers to to gun stores or being stolen from gun stores. And and to an extent, this is a a problem. I I don't think anyone would would seriously suggest it's not a bad thing that guns are stolen in transit. Um, that said, it's it's a minor part of the overall problem. Um, so I, I think it's like several thousand guns a year that are reported missing um, or or lost in in transit or from gun stores um, due due to theft or, or loss or anything. Um, but but some of the numbers suggest that you know th- there are potentially over a hundred thousand guns in total that that get stolen um, around the nation. So it's very clearly a very small part of that problem. I think most guns mm-hmm. that are, are getting stolen and, and winding up on the black market are from you know, people leaving their guns unlocked in cars um, or, you know, their house is getting broken into and their, their guns stolen that way. Um, so it, it's definitely an issue. But I, I think the concern here is, again, what is the worst case scenario that we could expect from an administration that is trying to find ways to make guns more expensive and impose more burdens on on sec- Second Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think some of those scenarios could include, um, I, I mean, yeah, if you stretch it to its limit and say, for example, in order to prevent firearm thefts and loss in transit, uh, FFLs can and manufacturers can only ship firearms in special armored train cars with 25 armored guards minimum and are uh, presumed responsible for any losses that occur, and it's a felony, right? All of a sudden, this has a chilling effect on manufacturing um, and and guns actually being marketed to the public right. um, because you have this problem of that, that becomes a tremendous burden on the manufacturing side. And even if it can be met, that, that this is realistic, um, that those costs get passed on to the consumer, right? so it becomes a de facto tax. Um, so, so that's again, I'm not suggesting that is exactly what will happen, um, but it's certainly, I think, within the realm of possibilities uh, that this is used not just as a legitimate means of of trying to prevent loss, but as a backdoor means of of imposing on the manufacturing side taxes and, and burdens that then get passed on to to consumers or run certain you know some of the smaller ffls out of business because they just can't comply yeah yeah it does feel like there's the possibility that this could be a sort of operation choke point-esque program where they're just pressuring carriers not to ship guns basically which would just gum up the whole uh, supply chain for gun dealers throughout the country and gun manufacturers 
Uh, you're obviously you've already seen some of the major carriers implement anti-gun policies. You know, UPS has refused to carry guns unless they're uh, shipped between FFLs, I believe, recently. So, um, you know, depending on exactly what they do here, it could have a significant effect on, um, you know, how how guns are are actually moved around the country and the, the whole commerce of firearms. Now, I think that would probably run into some significant legal issues, I'd imagine, if they do try to go extremely aggressive in that realm. But yeah, I think that makes sense as a potential uh, worst case scenario, right, for, for gun owners from this particular section of that policy. Um, what was the next one? So I think the final thing that really stood out, um, though I, I think uh, there, there is less control over what the FTC does, is the Biden administration highly suggested to the Federal Trade Commission, uh, because it, it can't direct the, the Federal Trade Commission, um, to issue a report, to, to do an investigation and issue a report into the, the uh, advertising practices of uh, the, the gun industry, gun manufacturers, gun sellers, uh, specifically with respect to two things. So with respect to uh, advertising guns to minors and then advertising guns to anyone based on, quote, military characteristics. Um, so this has been something that we've seen time and time again from gun control advocacy groups and, and even from this administration, is this idea that uh, the, the gun industry in recent decades has uh, sort of gone rogue and has focused on the, these militaristic uh, functions. You know, they, they, they want to push out to civilians that, you know, you too can be an army of one and that mm -hmm. somehow this facilitates civilians wanting to engage in, in mass murder, which you know, the, the logic wasn't always connecting there, um, but that, that inherently milit militaristic features are bad. We shouldn't be promoting them. And so therefore we should, we should um, uh, sort of expose the gun industry well, for this is, this pushing is the these logic features. Right behind the Sandy Hook lawsuit, right? This is, and this is, I think, why you see a lot of emphasis put on this in recent years, because that lawsuit ended in a successful settlement for the plaintiffs, even though, you know, obviously they were settling with the insurance company, not Remington, because Remington went bankrupt and had its right. assets sold off. But, yeah. And the insurers uh, just wanted to be done with it. Sure. Yeah. But it was a successful example of this tactic of trying to hold gun companies liable for mass shootings or, or just general gun crime, which is something they've been um, trying to do since the nineties, actually, again, go back to that Smith and Wesson right. situation was, was part of that. Um, and so that, but they haven't really had a lot of success with that. And this Remington settlement, the Sandy Hook settlement is probably the best they've done, even though it's not an actual court ruling on the merits, they never got that far, but the argument that survived long enough to get to a settlement was that the marketing of the guns and their use in military video games and um, and and elsewhere was contributed to the Sandy Hook shooting. Obviously, there's ser serious pitfalls with this yeah. argument because he didn't the shooter didn't buy that gun. He, his mother did, and then he murdered his mother and took the gun. And there was no evidence he actually saw 
any of these advertisements that right. they're talking about. But or, or that again that that somehow the militaristic right. advertising then promotes inherently will yeah, just go shoot people yeah. indiscriminately. Right. Uh, there's obviously a lot of a lot of arguments about the merits of this claim, but it was successful enough to get to that settlement. And so you're seeing a lot of uh, legislation and uh, efforts and lawsuits built around this basic argument now. And that's where this FTC thing p- plays into all this, right? Right. Yeah. And, and and again, I don't know what the FTC will do, because at least my understanding is that the president can't you know, as he can for other agencies, there's a little bit more independence uh, with the FTC, so he can't just order them to do this. Right. Um, so he, he strongly suggests it. Um, you know, th- there's always the possibility that the, the FTC does it. Um, and I, I think Democrats have been pushing for that, too. Right. Sen- there have been senators pushing for it. And I think the idea is if they if they were to re- release a report that said, I don't know, that this advertising is reckless or something, that then that would they could use that right. in court to sue these these right gun yeah that, that it might do two things so so one it might sort of facilitate um, more lawsuits right because they've essentially done discovery for potential plaintiffs um, mm-hmm. to be like look here's here's all the evidence you need go go you know go forth and sue um, but I I think the the other thing that could come out of that right is that it then becomes. Uh, it sort of facilitates uh, congressional hearings, right? So, so Democrats uh, mm-hmm. in whatever house that they they might control, whenever such report would come out, um, could potentially use that, or even you know state level bodies could could use that uh, to you know hold hearings and and like okay, we we have to do something about this rogue gun industry. Um, I think the, the same thing is true with. Um, the, the theme of advertising for minors, right? You'll you'll get like the the JR fifteen, you know, your yes. your single shot twenty two long rifle with a pistol grip, um, you know, using that to, to to be like, look, they want kids to to have guns and shoot people, um, which again, there's there's logical fallacies there, but I I think it lends itself to you know, that report being used as ammunition, if you will, no no pun intended, mm. for further lawsuits or further you know, lawmaking bodies um, to, to find use it hard to believe you didn't intend that pun. No, it just, it flew right out and I was, I let it happen. I, it couldn't be stopped. Yes. Uh, yeah, but the, the, it's kind of funny, actually. The whole advertising to minors thing is really just based around that one single gun and its initial marketing campaign that featured, you know, the scroll, skull and crossbones with the pacifier marketing that they had. They've actually changed They've abandoned that now after all the uproar, but I think yeah. it probably accomplished the goal of getting them lots of attention. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, so they, they, there that's are kind couple, of the whole that's kind of the whole thing of the yeah, minor advertising, just that one gun. Well, you, you'll you'll get a couple of other things, right? So you'll you'll get um, so after Uvalde, for the example, Daniel Defense tweet, yeah. right? D- D- Daniel Defense, where it was, you know, the, the point of the tweet to any reasonable observer was very clearly train your kids in gun safety right. when they're young and they won't be idiots with guns when they're older. So it was a toddler um, holding an AR, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was I like don't a think the goal child. is to sell that toddler right. yeah. guns. Um, whatever right. you think of the, right. whether they should have put this, any of these advertisers, whatever you think of them as, yeah. whether it, they're good. It very clearly was not, you know, let's give kids guns so that they can go right. shoot you shoot up an elementary school. And, and I think, too, you, you see it a little bit in the argument of 
um, these guns being used in, in video games that mm. arguably are, are sold to, to, to teens, to minors. I mean, some of them probably just based on video game ratings are not going to very young children. Well, they um, shouldn't be. But, but they, right, right. You least. know, that, that, that kids, minors are playing these games and they're getting used to these guns. But, but again, you know, for, I think, at least a decade at, at this point, it's, it's been a while since any of these video game uh, manufacturers or, or creators have actually gone to the, the weapons companies and yeah. created deals to use them. It's really just uh, one game. Uh, right. Call No, not Call of Duty. Call of Duty never did it. It was um, Medal of Honor, Warfighter. Right. And, and, and then all of a sudden, one of the companies was like, we're just not going to ask you anymore. And yeah, that's why they, all the they games. They stopped doing it. That's why all the guns in the games are real guns, but they're not called the actual names of the gun. They right. always make up some some name for them that isn't what they actually are. It, although I've always found that kind of weird because like, it's one thing not to have, oh, this is the Daniel Defense, you know, whatever model AR. It's another thing to say this isn't this isn't an M4. This is a, you know, an M53A6. Or it's like, why? I don't know. But regardless, that's what they do with, in video games is they put in the real guns but they don't put in who makes them or their actual names. They really only ever did that in a single game that wasn't terribly popular, to be honest. Um, that's why that was the last game in the Medal of Honor series. It didn't sell very well. But yeah, it's a lot of these things hinge on like single example arguments. Like the JR-15 is is their one argument for why, you know, for, for how bad advertising is of guns to children. And then, yeah, Call a uh, Medal of Honor warfighter is like their one example of a video game that used actual uh, real world names for their for the guns involved. But anyway, we're getting a little bit off track. The point is they're they want to try and get the FTC to issue a report so that they can use that in efforts to sue the industry and 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 then also for congressional hearings, like you said, right? Right. And so. Uh, the last thing I want to get into here is, I guess, just a broader view of this this executive order. Because to me, and we may disagree on this, but I look at it and I see a president at the limits of what he can really do on his own unilaterally. Like he's already he's already taken all the gray areas that existed before and pushed through as far as he possibly can on them with the with the redefinition of what a firearm is to go after unfinished parts. And the reclassification of pistol braced ARs and, and other guns as short barrel rifles needing registration under the NFA. And now he's more trying to, th this feels more symbolic. I know that we've just talked about the potential, uh, you know, furthest pushing aspects of these things that, that they could try to do, uh, but also all the reasons why perhaps they won't, that wouldn't get any i mean i think the ftc thing even would start to run up against like first amendment issues in addition to second amendment issues if they tried to just ban gun advertising outright or right whatever. yeah and, and i don't i don't know that the ftc unilaterally could do that as much as you know right. they, they just want that report um so you know, I, you know, I, I, how I, do you see it do you think it's uh is this as aggressive is this a sign that he's becoming boxed in on this issue well, I, I think it's certainly a sign that like he, from the, the outset, has been uh, probably the most vocally 
pro-gun control president mm-hmm. in in history. Sure. Um, you know, this is this has always been from the beginning his his plan to, to cater to to gun control uh, advocacy groups. And so uh, on the one hand, I, I think you are correct uh, that generally speaking, he used up most of his like, very clearly readily available tools with the, the two other ATF rules. Um, it, it, you know, that that was the th- those were the two most obvious ways of, of going after um, at least on a, a wide scale and a direct scale going after gun owners and gun ownership um, and, and making life more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at this point, he he is just trying to to get those you know little edges that he can. Now that said, I, I again having just spent however many minutes going over potential worst case scenarios, I, I don't want to make it seem as though in those worst case scenarios, oh, you know, it's it's not a big deal sure. because I I think those can have far reaching effects. Um, but they are in less direct, less obvious ways, and it is getting to a point where he's he's having to just sort of you know start cutting around the edges as as much as he can um, to to continue making it look like he's he's consistently routinely trying to make progress in 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 his view on gun control issues. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit of of both, um, and I, I don't want to just write it off as as nothing. Because there is some potential there, um, but it's the, the the general premise is yeah, he's 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 taking care of the the lowest hanging fruit at this point. Yeah, because to me, I look at the overall situation, right? I, I look and I see he has no chance of fit. as much as he want. He can go out there and say we're going to pass an assaultman's ban. You know, I did it in the '90s, and I'm going to do it again. No, he's not. Like it's not going to happen in this Congress. It's just, there's no chance of that. There's really no chance of him getting anything he would want on guns from this Congress, even because uh, it's, it's an even harder sell than it was in the last Congress where right. he did get the, that, that bipartisan bill that, you know, we could talk at length about, but is relatively minor as, as far as right. what it's, he it's, actually wants. It's certainly not an assault weapons bill. Right. right. And um, so he's got no real legislative hope of passing his agenda. And then at the same time, he's done these two previous ones that were much more aggressive, but they're on track to be blocked. I mean, one is already almost completely blocked. You know, the, the, the ghost gun rule is now blocked for defense distributed. It doesn't apply to defense distributed, which is one of the most important uh, companies out there that make unfinished parts or tools to finish unfinished parts and so forth. Uh, it, it seems likely that it'll get struck down altogether in a short order here in the Fifth Circuit. Just had the bump stock ban, which obviously was Trump, not Biden, but right. is something that I'm sure he's supports and is really modeling these other executive orders. I, after. I, I think if that got struck down, it actually might be considered a loss for him because people mm-hmm. don't necessarily sure. connect that, you know, with with a previous administration. Right. But I just, you know, they're using basically the same logic from the bump stock ban right. to apply to the, the ghost gun ban and the pistol brace ban. These are all basically the same rulemaking process and the same thinking in each of them. And it's really bad sign for the pistol brace ban that the bump stock ban has been struck down by the Fifth Circuit. I don't see any of these three making it, uh, you know, into force here, into effect for much longer. And now, you know, you look at this latest executive order 
And it, it just seems lo- more like, oh, I'm suggesting these certain things that when you look at them, there are some possibilities that it could go in a very aggressive direction. But to me, feels like uh, a signal that he's he's really at the end of what he can do on his own. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it either, but that's, that's where I, I, I come down on, you know, what did he release this? They tried to make a big deal about it. And I looked at it and I thought, this is actually, it shows the limits of what he can really do. He's already at that. Um, but I'll have more on that in a, a members piece here for the reload. If people want to check that out, uh, that, that'll be out soon. So it should be out by the time this podcast goes up, but, but yeah, you know, so maybe, I don't know. I might be even less worried about it than than perhaps you are. I don't know. Yeah, and and again, I it it's hard with an administration that has been so vocally anti-gun and so very clear from the beginning that you know they they want to do whatever they can to make this difficult for law-abiding gun owners and and make it difficult on the lawful gun industry that I, I almost have to assume they're mm. going to stretch for the limits of, of what they can do, um, even if it's not quite, you know, worst case scenario that, um, you know, again, even though this is largely, I think, wanting to make it seem like they're continuing to, to do something on guns um, and there are clearly limits to the something that, that they can do, I think they are trying to push it to those limits. Um, but but again, I, I think all of that will be up for a conversation when when we see what the actual language is from these rules. Um, yes. I, I look forward to that conversation. Very good um, point. And I, yes. I, I hope I am wrong. I, I hope they don't try to stretch it to those limits because those limits could be very problematic. Yeah, we will have to see exactly how this turns out, if they even do rulemaking for some of this stuff or if it just ends up being guidance that maybe DOJ puts out on FFL, you know, compliance or what have you. But yeah, that's something we, you know, legitimately we'll have to actually see what they try to put through. And uh, perhaps we can have you back on once they're in that process, once we get through to some of the details, the further details of this, so that we can we can um, judge yeah. where exactly they came down. But we'll, until we'll, then, we'll see, we'll see uh, who, who came closest in horseshoes yeah. here. Yes, there we go. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, put a wager on it somehow. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but no, I mean, it, it was obviously a more serious note. This, it will really matter what the details are. The devil's mm-hmm. always in the details of these things. And we'll have to circle back. This isn't the end of it, right? You can read that, the fact sheet, but the fact sheet is a, is a guidance. It's right. not what's actually going to be in the rules. And that's what's going to determine whether this is as aggressive as it could be in practice. And so that's a really good point that you made. Uh, we'll have to have you back on at that point, I think, to maybe... Uh, go over exactly how these things turn out. But until then, where where can people find more of your writing or, or uh, see more of your work? Uh, well, you can always follow me on Twitter at Amy Swear, and you can see what I'm up to and what my colleagues are up to on a wide variety of issues at heritage.org um, or on our multimedia arm, which is the dailysignal.com. Wonderful. Well, uh, the, we're going to head on over to our news update segment now. All right, it's time for our news update segment with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing pretty good, Steve. How are you? I'm all right. Things are going pretty well. Uh, busy week. Just scheduled a new 
concealed carry class and I got to get my, I'm finally going to get my DC and Maryland um, <laughs> permits because I've held off on doing, well, I went through the whole DC process years ago and um, it was, a, it was a mess. And it was when they were, when they first passed their May issue law and then that got struck down and then I got caught in sort of a bureaucratic uh, mess doing that. And then I just didn't put the effort into sorting everything out. So now I'm going to go ahead and uh, finally do that and get my Maryland permit at the same time. Some would say that a bureaucratic mess is a feature, not a bug of the DC permitting system. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I will say that making it more complicated or work intensive to get a permit does actually keep people from doing it. Cause uh, for right. instance, I'm, I'm also re-upping my Pennsylvania non-resident permit because Pennsylvania's governor, when he was the attorney general had broken the uh, reciprocity deal that Pennsylvania and Virginia had. So Virginia, Virginia's licenses, which I, which I have, I have a regular resident permit in Virginia and had that for a long time, but that's recognized in 35 other states, but not Pennsylvania. And that was like the one state that he revoked the reciprocity. <laughs> so, and it's also the only other state that I really ever go and carry in because that's where I'm you know, originally from for anyone who hasn't figured that out from looking at the background here uh, on the, <clears throat> on the YouTube show. But uh, I had a non-resident permit for five years and then it expired during the pandemic. Uh, and they weren't accepting renewals in Delaware County from non-residents at the time because uh, it expired in 2020, I believe, if I remember correctly. And then Wolf, the governor at the time, had done this legally questionable thing that but nobody was like too upset about it, where he just sort of extended the expiration dates of all the uh, concealed carry permits for like another year and a half. But. But I still wasn't able to actually go and renew it. So now I have to apply for a new one, much less complicated process in Pennsylvania. But you basically just have to pass a background check and pay them $20. But yeah, the, for a long time, the, it's a county based thing, right? It's the each county uh, sheriff's office, I believe, does the processing. And they all have different policies about whether they'll issue to non-residents or not. And they all started moving to an online system finally at, during the pandemic, and it has sort of uh, conflicting statements in there and some of these about whether you can get a non-resident. So I applied for one of those, too, in Delaware County, and we'll see. I'm um, still waiting on to hear back on that one. They have like 45 days. But in Maryland, I'm, just, I'm doing because you can finally actually get the Maryland permit right. in real life. And I found a class where you can take one class to qualify for DC, Maryland, and Virginia, instead of having to take, you know, three different classes that all cost $300. Uh, so I'm going to take advantage of that. Yeah. Well, good luck on your quest to, to navigate <laughs> yeah. the bureaucratic hurdles. I'll keep you guys all updated on how well that, that works out. Cause then after you do, that's just the training part, right? You got to do the training, which itself is like, several classes over several days, some online, some in person, there's range portions, you know, it's a pretty high uh, bar for training in Maryland and DC. 
And so you got to do, you got to jump through a bunch of extra hoops. Uh, Virginia's is pretty, you can get the Virginia one alongside these two, just because Virginia's requirements aren't, uh, aren't as extensive. We'll say, uh, you know, you, you need a training course, unlike Pennsylvania and you need to pass a background check and it's like $50, but, but, uh, you don't need to DC requires like a 16 hour class with two hours of range time, which is hard to do because in, if you live in DC, because there aren't any actual public ranges there, but regardless, uh, you know, this class is a bit of a shortcut in the sense that you don't have to take several separate classes that teach you the same exact stuff, but, uh, comply with, just one set of requirements. And so this one hits all of the requirements in one class. It's going to take a while, but uh, it should be good by the end. And, you know, Maryland is on the way to passing, of course, one of these Bruin response bills that's going to make it impossible, I'm sure, to carry most places. DC is, DC was the old strictest version, but you can still carry in a lot of places. Not, you know, they do have funk bizarre rules like they have roving gun free zones that uh, follow around anyone under diplomatic protection. So if you ever see uh, one of those convoys, the, the motorcades driving around, uh, you're supposed to run away from it or something because <laughs> there's a gun free zone that follows it around wherever it goes. Same for protests, although they've done some of this stuff in Virginia, too. So uh, the, and these are just kind of security theater things because how would they ever know or right what are the like it's just kind of dumb concepts but what you know stuff you have to deal with if you want to carry in dc or maryland and uh well so i want to get the permits while i can and see what happens from there because uh the most dangerous place i ever go really is Philadelphia and DC. And I, right now I can't legally carry it in those places. So it'd yeah. be nice if I, if I could do that. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, you got any plans, anything interesting? I know you well, went shooting. How, how yeah, was, was the trip? I was going to say, I took a, a buddy of mine out. Uh, he just got his first pistol. So he was pretty ex excited to shoot it for the first time. It's a, a SIG P320. And uh, we went out last Saturday and spent about two and a half hours at the range and it was a great time and he was totally, totally stoked to be a, a new gun owner. Um, so that mm -hmm. was really cool to see. And yeah, uh, speaking of, it is always, right? it's always fun to see people, you know, fall in love with something that you enjoy doing as a hobby, um, mm -hmm. especially cause this wasn't someone that grew up around guns and he's just right. sort of getting into it in adulthood. And it's, it's always cool to see. Yeah. And I'm I, taking uh, some of my friends, uh, with me to do the, the CCW class. So that'll be, that'll be good too. And I'm trying nice. to get, I think I'll try to get a new carry gun i think I'll, i think i'm gonna do the the 320 x uh macro perhaps although of course there's you know dc has a magazine limit so right. <laughs> you know i want to get the x macro because it has better capacity but but then i can't actually carry that in dc well i'd have to carry it with 10 round magazines or whatever right well we'll see yeah, the pitfalls you, of all the different laws. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you got. There's all kinds of stuff you got to think through if you want to carry in the DMV. Um, but <laughs> but speaking of uh, new pistol purchases, like your friend there, uh, we got a story about, out in North Carolina. You've been following this for a while now. Uh, the pistol purchase permit deba uh, debate down there has heated up, and now they've actually passed the bill, right? That's right. Yeah. So they're back again with a uh, repeal bill that they sent to Governor Roy Cooper's desk. 
Uh, listeners may recall that something similar happened in 2021, but Cooper vetoed that bill. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, the state legislature didn't have the votes to override the veto. So that was sort of, you know, that was the end of that. But now, after the midterms, uh, North Carolina Republicans actually have a veto-proof majority in the Senate, and they're one vote shy in the House. But this bill actually cleared with those veto-proof votes. I believe three Democrats joined House Republicans in passing that bill along to Governor Cooper. So now it's sort of a, a little bit of a standoff to see what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, by all counts, Cooper's probably going to veto it again. Uh, there's nothing to suggest that he he suddenly supports it. And we're just going to have to see if uh, those three Democrats and even some of the Republicans are going to stick to their guns, so to speak, and uh, and vote to override this. Yeah. So, they, I mean, they're, they're certainly closer than they've ever been to repealing this Jim Crow era uh, permit purchase law that's been criticized for disproportionate enforcement um, against African-Americans, basically. You know, this was passed in the wake of uh, race riots <clears throat> back in 1919. And, uh, you know, in, a, in an era in the South where, you know, there was uh, <clears throat> quite a lot of effort to keep black people from owning guns, just to be straightforward. Now, uh, this law wasn't explicitly racist like some of the predecessors, but uh, it has been criticized for uh, the, the effects that it had, that, that it seems officials used it to target African-Americans. And still, really, to this day, there's a disparity there, right? Yeah, there's a, uh, a 2021 North Carolina Law Review article that actually kind of looked at some data, I believe, from Wake County, which is one of the, the larger counties in North Carolina. And they found that African-American applicants for these these per, uh, permit to purchase um, when they go to their local sheriffs are denied at something like a three to one rate from their white counterparts. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not automatically uh, evidence of you know racial animus or something, but it is at least evidence of a disparity that exists under this law. And um, su uh, supporters of the repeal of this bill are, are pointing to this as sort of like, hey, look, what, you know, we've, we've become more conscious of racial disparities as of late. Well, what about this particular policy that still to this day is causing some of those same disparities? Yeah. And so it's passed with this veto proof majority, right? That that would imply that it has a good <clears throat> chance of making it into the law, regardless of what the governor does. However, uh, you wrote in a member's piece this week that that might not actually be the case. And there's there's good reason to think that perhaps it won't survive a veto. Yeah, that's right. So listeners may recall a effort in 2021 in the state of Louisiana, which there's some similarities here. Uh, Louisiana is a fairly red state, but also has a blue or a, rather a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. They, in 2021, they passed a permitless carry bill with, once again, huge majorities, bipartisan um, majorities, veto-proof majorities the first time around. Edwards, the entire time when they were debating that bill, said, I'm against this, I'm going to veto it. And sure enough, when it got to his desk, he vetoed it. Then the, the Louisiana legislature uh, brought it back to the floor to try to do a veto override vote. And not only did the Democrats that voted for the bill defect and not vote for the veto, there were actually three Republicans that also voted against a veto override and one Republican who didn't even show up for the veto override vote. Uh, so clearly there's precedent where just having veto proof votes the first time around doesn't guarantee that those folks are going to stand firm and stick to their guns when there's a high profile override vote. Um, and that very well could yeah. play out here in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit of a debacle 
down there in Louisiana when that happened. And they, right. they even lost Republicans from the veto of a right vote. Uh, I think that there's probably something to be said about the different issues at stake. You know, one was permitless carry. This one's about repealing uh, permit to purchase law that has those sort of racist roots to it. And so maybe it'll be an easier vote for some of these Democrats and, and the Republicans. Maybe the Republicans are a little more organized in North Carolina than they were in Louisiana during that vote. You know, there's some good reasons to think perhaps they'll make it through. But, you know, like you said there, that's an example of why you don't want to count your chickens before they're hatched. Right. Is that is that the yeah. saying? Yeah. Right. So there is good reason to think it might not survive, too. I mean, it's it is one thing. It's, it's probably fairly odd to a lot of people who don't follow politics closely. But it's one thing to vote for a bill and approve of a policy it's another thing to vote to override your governor um, when you're of the same party, especially if they're fairly popular. Right. He he's polls fairly well right now. Yeah, he, he he's above water for sure. There's even been some uh, some polls that find him over 50 percent. And that's you know pretty good for a Democratic governor in a otherwise red red tilted state. Yeah, of course, maybe he'll change his mind. We don't know. Like you said, he didn't he hasn't put out statements like Louisiana's governor did during that bill. Obviously he's vetoed this bill in the past, but perhaps now with more of his party members on board with the bill, um, he'll, he'll back down. It's, you know, obviously I think there's probably a lot of backroom conversations going on right now about, absolutely. you know, the governor doesn't want to get embarrassed by getting his veto override necessarily. Um, and, so he's probably trying to figure out if it's if these Democrats will stay on board. Now, there's one Democrat in particular you think that is the key vote here. Yeah, he's sort of an interesting test case. So this Representative Michael Ray is his name. He is a Democrat. He uh, actually co-sponsored a House version of a pistol purchase permit repeal bill, uh, which on its face should indicate, well, wow, he's willing to put his neck out there and actually co-sponsor a bill to do this, he must really support this policy. Well, when it came time for that bill to actually get a floor vote in the House, he actually voted against his own bill because he said that he heard from sheriffs in his local district that said, uh, hey, we're kind of worried about this policy. I don't know if maybe this is a good idea. And so he voted against it. Well, then the Senate bill comes up that combines the pistol purchase permit repeal with a couple of other gun policies like allowing license carry on educational grounds when there's a religious ser service happening and a few other policies as well. So this omnibus gun bill goes through and Michael Ray votes for it again. Um, so it's kind of unclear what changed between then and now. Maybe he thought that other policies being involved gave him cover to vote for it. I don't know. But it's you would seem like he would be the key vote to hold firm. But when he already has a track record of flip flopping on the issue, it's kind of tough to say one way or another how he's going to react to a veto override vote. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, too, this permit to purchase law has been abused in recent years, especially during the pandemic by some sheriffs who have effectively stopped issuing the, the per permits during right. uh, certain periods of time uh, during COVID. I remember there was a sheriff in North Carolina who just stopped issuing permit purchase, uh, permit to purchase uh, paperwork. He wouldn't, and and there was a wait period that lasted for months and months. So, 
you know, this is not necessarily something where it's a formality that, you know, I'm sure in most of the state it is. Uh, the sheriff's not, you know, it's basically just a background check, which already exists on, you know, sales through licensed dealers anyway. But it can be used to just block all gun sales for at least some period of time. Uh, that's that guy, that sheriff got sued over that practice and had to back down, but it took a while uh, right. for that to clear through the courts. So uh, this isn't necessarily a purely symbolic thing to repeal this law. It, uh, there is a practical impact on uh, whether people can buy guns uh, in certain counties in the state. You no, know, that's right. And it's, it was funny that you, you bring up the, the sheriff in North Carolina. I think there's one or two mostly bigger city sheriffs. Um, and it seemed it played out very similar to what we've seen in states like Pennsylvania, where during the pandemic, Philadelphia, for example, with its carry permits, first wasn't act, flat out wasn't issuing them, got sued, then they agreed to issue them. But then they would slow walk the application process where it would take months when it's supposed to under statute only take a couple in, in North Carolina's case, it's supposed to take two weeks to hear back on your pistol purchase permit. And so he was slow walking the processing and then he got sued again. Uh, so as you said, there's very, very practical reasons that uh, opponents of the, the purchase law uh, have to point to to say, hey, you know, if all this uh, subjective uh, if, if sheriffs have the ability to to slow walk this process, you can flat out deny someone their right to purchase a, a gun under this law. So uh, definitely yeah. some some substantive stuff here. Yeah. So people should definitely head over to the reload and you can either read up on the the news story that that you wrote, which is uh, which is free for everyone, or they could check out the members piece if they want to get a little bit deeper dive into the practical aspect of overriding a potential veto in your members piece. So they should head on over to reload.com if they want to check out those pieces and learn more about this situation. But um, I think that's all we've got for you this week. If you like the show, you want to support our reporting, please like and rate this episode on wherever you're listening to it on YouTube. Uh, you can share it with your friends. That helps us tremendously. And of course, if you want to keep the reload going, want to help fund our work, you can go over and pick up a membership. It'll enable you, of course, to read those member exclusive pieces that we were just talking about. And you'll also get this podcast a day early, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show. If you if you're a member who wants to be on the show, you know, please reach out to your Sunday newsletter. That's another thing you get when you're a member of the reload. You get an extra newsletter on Sundays that gives you some of the analysis of these different events that we that we do each week, plus early access to the podcast. And uh, yeah, just reply to that e email and let us know you want to come on the show and we'll, we'll have you on for a member segment, one of my favorite segments to, that we do. And, uh, you know, of course, you can also uh, review the show on your favorite podcasting app or leave a comment on YouTube, interact. That's always helps spread the word as it were but that's all we've got for you this week we will be back again next week